Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Oh, good. Good. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason Coker. I'm also co-lead minister here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, and this is the time when we uh, do a little bit of teaching, and we are in the midst of a series that I've been calling Women of Resurrection. Between Easter and Pentecost, we've been looking at uh, depictions of women in the New Testament and how those depictions embrace the notion that women are made to lead, an idea that has not always been embraced in Christianity. And so I want to show you as much as I possibly can how those notions of female equality are built right into both New Testament scripture and as we'll hear just a little bit today, also Hebrew scripture as well. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 16, verse 7 today, just one verse. That's uh, bad news for you because it means I have to fill the rest of my time with all kinds of like, you know, Lord only knows what I'm going to say today. <laughs> that means this is a good moment to pray. <laughs> Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today, for this space, for this time for this congregation, for the way that the people in this congregation have embraced each other, despite coming from very different backgrounds, possessing very different identities, and having very different experiences with religion and spirituality. We're grateful for a space where we can all come and celebrate those differences and learn from each other and, and learn from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so first Mother's Day story, right? One of my favorite mother stories from our uh, family growing up is some of you know that when Janelle and I were like 24 years old, we adopted my youngest cousin on my mother's side of the family. His name was Chris. We, he took him in when he was uh, just turning 12 years old. And we had our first daughter, Savannah, at the time. She was about almost eight. Three? She was three? Wow, okay. Savannah was three when we took Chris in. And uh, Chris was an anomaly. He was a puzzle. He was an enigma. Nobody understood Chris. Chris acted in ways that did not make sense to any of us in the household, with the exception of me, because he came from my family, the the Goods, my mother's side of the family. They hailed from Germanic stock in the deep south of Mississippi. They were barely civilized as a family, right? Our entire family on my mother's side, they were like Huck Finn, right? Like they, they even wore like the pants that were cut off at the bottoms, right? And uh, so they were just, you know, they were adventurous. They were amazing storytellers. They were brilliant and they were absolutely, utterly transgressive in every conceivable way. This is the family that my youngest cousin, Chris, came from. And uh, one day, I remember, I'll never forget this, uh, Chris was in our living room doing, uh, he was on the phone. I remember now, he was on the phone. This is back when phones were attached to the wall, right? And you couldn't go that far while you were talking on the phone, however long your cord was. And Chris was on the phone talking to somebody seated at a secretary's desk. That was an antique secretary's desk that my dear wife, Janelle, inherited from her family. Now, imagine, you know, the Huck Finn, deep south Mississippi stock that was the Goods, and Janelle's family was the opposite, right? I mean, they were, you know, um, 
refined. They were more refined. You know, they came over on the Mayflower. They were established here from long before. And uh, it was this side of the family that had passed down this beautiful antique secretary's desk that Chris was sitting at talking on the phone. And while he was talking on the phone, his hands just reached out and grabbed for whatever was nearby that seemed interesting. It just happened to be a little poker, like a metal poker that Janelle used for, for some sort of art thing that she would do back then. And as he's talking on the phone, he's just jabbing the metal poker into the wood, in and out, over and over, while he's talking on the phone. And Janelle sees this, and she comes screaming, running into the room, what are you doing? And he just had the most quizzical look on his face, like she was speaking a different language. And so she, you know, <laughs> disciplined him, and uh, there were holes all across the whole top of this antique secretary's desk, and she sent him off to his room or something. And afterwards, I remember just exasperated. She said to me, why was he doing that? Why would he do that? And I tapped into the good side of me. <laughs> And I said, looked like fun to me. <laughs> Chris was an alien and a stranger in our home. He was utterly different than the rest of us. This is, uh, you know, there was a constant daily battle between Chris and our three-year-old daughter, Savannah, who I think at the age of four packed a bag and announced that she was moving out because this strange person had colonized the corner of our household. And Janelle, as a mother, her, her job every day was to like broker a new peace treaty between Chris and the rest of the house. She was an ambassador to Chris. She was constantly negotiating and renegotiating to make peace between this alien and stranger in our home and the rest of us. I promise you that has something to do with Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Here's the passage, Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Paul is in the closing portion of his letter to the Christians in Rome. And this is, of course, uh, as was customary for the day. You would typically open these letters with greetings. You would close them with greetings. This is right in the middle of a very long set of closing greetings. In fact, we read from this earlier in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Last week, we talked about one of the folks who was uh, represented in these greetings as another example of a woman leader in the early church. Today, I want you to look at verse 7. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. And they're prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, what's important to know is that Andronicus and Junia are considered by Paul to be part of the apostles. Now, you might be somebody who was raised in a tradition to believe that there were only 12 apostles. Right, The original 12 disciples who followed Jesus, that they were the apostles. But actually, we know from Scripture that there are a great many other apostles as well. So in addition to Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Judas, the bad one, and Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Bartholomew, Judas, the good one, Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, you can add, of course, Paul. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, who dubbed himself 
an apostle. And also, in addition to Paul, you can add Barnabas and Silas and Apollos and Timothy and Epaphroditus, who Paul also names as apostles. Apostles, it turns out, aren't much more widespread than just the original 12. And to that list, you can now, of course, add Andronicus and Junia. The important thing to understand for our purposes today is that if you put, hold another version of the Bible, aside from perhaps the NRSV, uh, which is what I'm reading from here, or maybe a, a very recent version of the NIV, this may very well be rendered as Andronicus and Junius. Because Junius was a very rarely used male name in the ancient Greco-Roman world. But Junia was a very popular woman's name. And so the debate rages. Was Junia a man or a woman? And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you on what side of that argument Christianity in the West has largely fallen. But we could go back to the fourth century, to John Chrysostom, perhaps one of the most important early church fathers, who in a sermon on Rome in the fourth century said this, and indeed, to be apostles at all is a great thing. But to be even among these of note, just consider what a great tribute this is. But they were of note owing to their works, to their achievements. Oh, how great is the wisdom of this woman, that she should even be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. In the fourth century, John Chrysostom believed that Junia was a woman. Junia was an extraordinarily popular woman's name. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, it's very likely that Junia was, in fact, a woman, and by Paul, here, considered to be an apostle. Well, so why does that matter? What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, many of you perhaps know that apost uh, apostolos means sent from, right? In the ancient uh, Roman world, it was a kind of messenger, somebody who possessed the credentials to go somewhere and speak on behalf of somebody with their authority, their credentials. They were typically sent to accomplish a purpose or a mission. That's what's meant by apostle, somebody who accomplishes a mission on behalf of somebody else. But defining this notion of apostleship or apostolicity in strictly male terms, has had devastating consequences for the church and for culture around the world. Because apostolicity has come to refer to the continuous beliefs, the unchanging doctrines or the unchanging character of Christianity going all the way back to the early apostles. And for that reason, being defined in strictly male terms, it has come to mean to conquer the beliefs and cultures of other people. To defeat them, to overcome them, to replace their beliefs, ideas, and culture with the beliefs and ideas and culture of what was then the dominant form of Christianity, which became a Western European expression of Christianity. As soon as the gospel became confused with the culture of the apostles, 
being an apostle meant converting every culture into Western Christianity. This is where we get colonialism. It's where we get white supremacy. It's where we get patriarchy. It's where we get heteronormativity. It is the rejection of differences. It's an utter lack of tolerance for anybody who thinks or acts or is or does or dresses or loves differently than the culture of the apostles. So the gospel is, of course, couched in culture. It's birthed in culture. When we talk about Jesus being incarnated, the idea that God became flesh in the person of Christ, God takes on a kind of culture. That culture is, of course, ancient Judaism. But the gospel isn't ancient Judaism. This is a very easy mistake to make. I have good friends who express their Christian faith as Gentiles by trying to adopt the manners and customs and culture of Jewish people. They celebrate satyrs and they pitch tents during the Feast of Booths and they have begun to comply with kosher laws because they have confused the goodness, the righteousness, the peace, the justice of God with a particular culture. And this is a mistake that we have been making for the past 2,000 years. And so when we see patriarchy in Scripture, we assume that patriarchy is the gospel. When we see heteronormativity in Scripture, we assume it is the gospel. Those are just features of culture. The gospel is a message of liberation for all cultures. And that means that culture is not the gospel, but neither is culture bad. Culture is just the way that we express our lives in different times, in different places, amongst different people. And that variety, that variation is good. Listen, I'm as white as white can possibly get, right? I told you, my ancestors were like Huck Finn, you know, Southerners. That's true on both sides of my family. Actually, the Goods were the respectable folk. The Cokers... (laughs) Even worse. But when I tell you that some of my favorite foods are Mexican food and Japanese food and Indonesian food, that's not to appropriate those cultures, to claim them for my own. That is to appreciate the goodness of difference. Because those cultures have produced a revelatory way of preparing food. Because, and this is another sermon, I know, but food is not just fuel, you guys. It is to be relished and enjoyed and in its own appropriate way, deeply loved. That's culture. Goodness and righteousness and peace and truth have a myriad of ways of expressing themselves in ways that we could have never possibly imagined. But in order to experience those differences as good and right and true, we have to be open to difference. The gospel became corrupted when it became aligned with power, and we saw it as our job to eradicate difference, to make everybody like us. 
This, by the way, also another sermon, is what is meant by whiteness. It's not a skin color. It's the eradication of difference. It's the eradication of your cultural particularity, your distinctiveness, which is good. Okay, that's not in my notes anywhere, but just so you know. What if there's a clue in here in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, that if apostolicity or apostleship, this being a sent one, if it's not about conquering one culture with another, is there a clue in here as to what apostleship really is? I think that clue is Junia's inclusion in this passage. When Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, some of your Bibles, unlike mine, might say compatriots. My compatriots who were in prison with me, they are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Paul's inclusion of a woman in a catalog of people who are normally men reveals to us, I think, a clue of what apostleship really is. Because Paul is saying that apostleship is the embrace of difference. In this case, gender difference. And as compatriots, these differently gendered apostles are partnering together. They work together in the midst of their differences to bring a message of goodness to people who need it. This, I think, is what it means to be an apostle. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul reminds us that we were all aliens and strangers to God. But that in Christ, in the person of Christ, we are reconciled to God and no longer aliens and strangers. This characteristic of being an alien and a stranger, not only to God, but to each other, is the fundamental thing that we must overcome. Because our differences, in an effort to conquer them, to eradicate them, lead us to do violence to each other. But if the gospel is not about eradicating difference, but embracing it, then apostleship becomes reaching out as a kind of ambassador, a kind of delegate to engage with difference and to be reconciled in spite of difference. To stop seeing difference as a threat and seeing it as an opportunity for unity in the midst of difference. This is what we do every time we take communion. It's the reason we take communion in this church every week. It's the reason somebody different gets up here and leads us in communion so that we can hear other people's perspectives on communion. What's happening in communion is that people who otherwise are aliens and strangers to each other come together to celebrate their common dependence on grace and mercy as represented by Christ. It is a space of reconciliation. And we do it, even if we don't feel it. Even if we had the worst fight with our partner right before we got to church, like Sunday mornings before church is the epic time to have a fight with your spouse, right? <laughs> Even if we're not feeling it, we come here, we eat the bread, we take the cup, and we pretend for a moment like we aren't going to kill each other. <clears throat> pretend is just a sort of more banal word for faith, right? We suspend disbelief and act as though we are unified. 
because we believe like, like a mustard seed that it might be true. And so we act as though it is. What if then apostleship is this task of engaging with difference, embracing difference, partnering together in spite of difference to be reconciled to aliens and strangers, not to conquer them? Well, that, by the way, is a very feminine energy. I said this last week, but much about Scripture that we have hidden, that we have erased, that we have ignored, is the feminine side of the gospel. That is not to say that it can only be carried out by those who were natally born as women, but simply that that energy that we tend to denigrate as feminine is characteristic of much that we see in Scripture about the gospel. It's why half, and I'm not exaggerating, 50% of all the references to God in Hebrew Scripture are feminine. El Shaddai is the Hebrew word, one of many Hebrew words for God. It is a descriptive term. El is the ancient word for a particular kind of God in the ancient Near East, and Shaddai paired with it means, are you ready for this? You've heard this before, I'm sure. El Shaddai is the many-breasted one. That the, the thing, the person, the entity, the reality that we refer to as God is like a woman with enough breasts to nurture and suckle all of us. What if that is apostolicity? What if that is apostleship? What if that is what leadership, according to the gospel, looks like? I think this matters a lot. How, how might Christian faith be different if we embraced this notion of apostleship or leadership in the church as reconciliation between aliens and strangers? Instead of overcoming, conquering, eradicating differences, we celebrated our differences and learned from each other's differences. What would our buildings look like? What would our stained glass look like? How would our songs be different? How would our preachers be different? Would there be preachers? I don't know. This feels a whole lot like I'm trying to conquer you with my smart ideas, which is a very white Western thing to do. I'm doing my best, y'all, to subvert this. I don't know if it's working. But how would Christianity be different if we embrace this idea? Maybe more importantly, uh, I want to ask you today, who are the juniors in your life? Who are the women who have done the tireless work of reconciliation, who have reached out like ambassadors to those who are different, who have done whatever it took to broker peace and understanding and goodness and the cultivation of the gospel, but had their identities erased? Or were denied honor? 
because we are stuck in some notion of strength and power in strictly masculine terms. Hey, listen, I will get around to preaching a series on the goodness of masculinity as soon as we quit weaponizing it. Who are the Junians in your life? Maybe it's you. Maybe you never thought of yourself as a leader, as somebody who is a messenger of the gospel because you suffered under some patriarchal notion of what it meant to actually lead. What if you gave yourself permission to call yourself an apostle? Paul did. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your daughter, your sister. I don't know, but my bet is you know more than one Junia in your life who deserves honor. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for today, for again how uh, the words of Scripture, if we are open to seeing them differently, can liberate us from harmful ways that it has been used to subjugate and constrain We ask God that you would give us in this moment together, in this time when we are worshiping and praying and greeting each other and getting to know each other a little bit better, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the possibilities, the goodness in the gospel in fresh new ways. We pray especially for women who have not been given the honor that they are due. Now you would help this church in particular to tear down some of those walls and express your goodness differently. We pray all this in Jesus' name. you know about. Also, parents, if you can still hear me, if you have not had a chance to sign your kiddos in, you can do that right inside the classroom this morning. And I'm not up here to speak. Jason is coming up, although I've got some stuff to say. I'm going to save that, all right? All right, How Not to Read the Bible is starting this Tuesday. Uh, it's a great way to learn how to look and read and study the Bible in a way that is compassionate when you have those conversations with people. So if you've met people that it doesn't feel compassionate and loving how they talk about the Bible, this is the exact opposite. It starts this Tuesday, May 16th, and we would love for you to be part of that. Uh, that's via the Zoom. Um, I believe also that's live as well. Yeah. 
Okay, live or on Zoom. Um, really great opportunity to volunteer as uh, part of a community yes, together. Yeah. Yes, sir. When you say live, what do you mean? You know, I just mean like somebody standing in real life talking to people. Oh, no, no, Let's no, do it no. via the Zoom, which is way easier and far better, everybody. Okay, so we can do that on the Zoom. It is live. It's, it, it's, it's live. It's not recorded. So that's going to be a great opportunity for you. Love for you to get involved with that as well as volunteering here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. You can do that on Friday, May 26th. If you've heard of Brother Benno's, they impact this community in a really great and loving way to serve the homeless and OSC members um, and people that are part of this uh, community are going to be able to partner with Brother Benno's and serve uh, the homeless on Friday. May 26th, you can sign up for that on the Oceanside Sanctuary website. Uh, we'd love for you to support what's happening here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. The best way to do that is online. All that information's online. If you ever wonder how your money supports what this space does, our staff would love to talk to, uh, talk to you more about that.